Now on Documentary on News Talk, award-winning producer Gronja McPolin tells the fascinating story of five religious Irish women who worked in the missions abroad. This is Mission Possible. At that time, they only came home every seven or eight or ten years from Africa. So they would be half dead by the time they'd come back and they'd have to have a lot of rest and medical care. No, there was no running water, no electricity, <laughs> no entertainment, uh, no phones. I never had a phone for the 17 years. And but the thing that really shocked me there were two police, uh, armies, army men, with two guns standing at the foot of the plane. So it was martial law in Korea when we went into Korea. It takes a special kind of person to be a missionary, to sacrifice home and family life and dedicate your life serving the poor, vulnerable and those on the margins of society in a foreign country thousands of miles away from everything you know to be familiar. Can you imagine having to not only overcome language and culture barriers, but also possibly be the target of rebel groups and gangs? This is the story of how the extraordinary Irish women religious attained Mission Possible. Sister Joan McDermott, the youngest of a family of ten, comes from the Cooley Peninsula in County Louth. My father was a small farmer in the Cooley Peninsula and uh, coming as the very last of the family, I was the youngest of seven girls. She initially resisted the call to enter religious life. Well, people had suggested it to me a couple of times, including my sister who was already a Columban sister. And other people would say, well, you'll become a nun too. And I didn't want to. I didn't feel at all drawn to it. I would not think of myself as being suitable at all. And I enjoy going to parties and dances. And I was working in the Louth County Council in the health department and really enjoying life and I certainly didn't feel that I would ever become a sister myself nor did I want to. If truthfully I had ever thought about it I knew that it was niggling at me inside and I was trying to dodge it. I didn't really want to give up the life that I was living then. And then after that I think it was a shortly after Christmas time and we had presents and gifts and parties and all that and then one day I just felt a great emptiness about it all just that it was all like chalk there was nothing attractive about it so I said I think that's an indicator to me that I should really think more deeply about what I want to do with my life so that made me decide that I had better face this thing that was niggling inside me. And I was hoping even up to the day that I was entering, which was October the 3rd, 1960, I was hoping that something would happen that would avert me having to do this. 
But then once I entered the convent, I felt a sense of belonging and that this was for me and I felt quite happy and content there. I'm Sister Mary O'Shea and I'm from Castle Gregory, County Kerry. And I'm sure many of the, your listeners will know Castle Gregory because it is a great holiday resort. When I finished my leaving cert, I went off to the civil service in Dublin and I spent three years in Dublin Castle. While I was at secondary school, I thought a lot about it. And then when I was in the civil service, I was still thinking about it. And in the end, I said, yes, I have to make a decision. I just felt called to serve God in the religious life. Now, I did a good bit of reflection on different congregations. But in the end, I decided to join the Missionary Sisters of the Holy Rosary in Kilishandra County, Cavan. Why? I didn't know any other missionary congregations, but I felt a call to be a missionary and to help people abroad. My name is Mary Dillon. I come from a farming community in West Clare, ten of us in family. My parents were farmers and they worked the farm and they were able to provide for all ten of us and to educate all ten of us through their, um, their hard work, really. Uh, I come from a local community, I suppose. We were very much involved in the local community. We knew all the neighbours, we in interacted with all the neighbours, we went, had sports with all the neighbours. So uh, I have great memories, really, of my life in West Clare. And why did you decide to enter the convent and become a nun? I went to school as a boarder to the Mercy Sisters in Kilrush. As I came to the end of my fourth year in Kilrush, I, I really questioned, what am I going to do? I was, uh, I was always inclined to be a nurse. So I said to myself, will I go to England and do nursing? Or will I go to apply to go to Dublin and do nursing? And in some way, there was some niggling... Um, desire in my heart to help people. And at that time, the Columban Sisters, of what we are really called, the Missionary Sisters of St. Columban, our founding house was in Carcon on the banks of the Shannon in Kiladisert. So in 1958, the Columban Sisters moved out of Carcon because I think it had a lot to do with our, because we were international, we needed to be near airports and universities and all that. I remember being written up in the Clare Champion, the farewell the Columban Sisters got, and I said, God, no, that's a group now. I wouldn't mind joining. So um, poverty in some way has attracted me. Poverty and service. So um, that's really why I chose a missionary congregation. I said, oh God, I'll be out there now in Korea or in the Philippines or one of these countries. And uh, I decided then I would write to three congregations. And the Columbians were the first to answer. So I came for my interview here in um, June of 1964, and I joined the Columbians in 19, in October 64, and there were 17 of us in my group the even I joined. Dr. Carmel Mangian, historian of British and Irish religion and gender at Birkbeck University of London, talks of mission fever sweeping Ireland in the 1960s. It's a time when the missions become very important in the Irish context. Um, some historians have called it mission fever, and so what you start seeing is this interest in going out to the missions, 
And that interest is communicated more broadly, say, in mission magazines, um, in the press, um, and I think, and, and via the sisters themselves, the missionary sisters who often come back from the missions and then do a tour around various schools, um, you know, talking to young girls in these schools about the missions. There's also missionary films. They're quite sophisticated work, uh, propaganda of sorts, of course, because they are meant to celebrate the missionary work. Um, celebrate the work of the sisters, um, and of course they are meant to evangelize because that is the point of um, of going out to the missions in terms of you know what the sisters are doing. So there is a lot of excitement about the missions. Indeed, any excitement coming with the new chapter in her life was soon tempered with a dose of reality for Sister Mary O'Shea when she first entered the convent, but it didn't put her off. It was a, a long avenue up to the convent and it was a huge place because at that time there must have been maybe 150 sisters living in it because there would have been 60 at least in formation and then there were a whole lot of sisters home from the missions and they were you know, very sick or needing long rests because at that time, they only came home every seven or eight or ten years from Africa. So they would be half dead by the time they'd come back, and they'd have to have a lot of rest and medical care. Anyway, I was glad to see that there were, I think it was 20 more entering at the same time with me. So I said, it mustn't be too bad if so many more want to come as well. Oh, will I ever forget the evening I entered. Now, you've all, you've, you've built up to this thing of leaving home and all that. But really, I wasn't aware of my emotions until I had to say goodbye to my family here in this big house. And I even stood behind the door and cried. I just didn't want to see it. It was a long goodbye for a young girl entering the convent, leaving their family. Dr. Carmen Mangion. It was difficult enough, I think, for many families to give up their daughters. Um, of course, religious life was always a separation in some ways from their natal family, but going on to the missions was particularly difficult because who knows when, um, you know, when the daughter turned sister would actually come back from the missions. You know, it wasn't always guaranteed that it would be every few years, you know, much was dependent on the circumstances and the congregation. So, they, so parents, families were really giving up a lot when their daughters went into these missionary congregations. Growing up in Ireland, I was one of hundreds of thousands of people educated and trained by the religious orders. Every day I attended my local convent school and I often wondered what was life like for the sisters living in the convent located on the grounds of the school. It seemed almost mystical. Sister Mary Dillon brings us into that world for just a brief moment. What was convent like here? Because I was a boarder, and there were nearly 50 of us in, in the novitiate at the time, I found convent life very structured like a boarding school, do you know? You studied scripture, you studied theology, you took care of the house, you took care of the grounds, you could took care of the orchard. And then the other element that really struck me here was the congregation was young, we were all young, and even the sisters going to the missions and the sisters returning from the missions on holidays, they were all young women. 
That was way back now in 1964. So the people who came home for the missions always came to visit the novitiate and they would sit there for afternoon for about an hour or two and tell us all about the missions that were in, you know. Like, in a way, our life in the novitiate and information here was always geared towards leaving the country. And then, you had, as I say, you had this influence stirring up the desire in your heart that this is where you were going to go. And I remember when the sisters just leave for the missions too, we used to go out to the door, we'd all wave them off to the door. Vatican II Council was convened in Rome between 1962 and 1965 by Pope John XXIII and concluded by Pope Paul VI. Its purpose was to reform the Catholic Church and bring it into the 20th century. In effect, it was to make the Church more user-friendly for Catholics. These changes were welcomed by Sister Mary O'Shea when she was professing to be a nun. This was in 1965 I entered and I did six months postulancy. It was a time really of getting to know the people I was entering with and, you know, getting a feel for the place. There was really no commitment at that early stage. After that, we were received as novices for two years. And that was serious and very strict. So then, so there's two years as a novice. Mm -hmm. And then what happens then after that? Now, after that then, at the time, a change took place. It used to be final profession after three years. But after Vatican II, it said, take five to nine years before you make a final commitment. It was a very interesting time to have entered, in fact, because you could see a huge transition. Now, people outside probably didn't know all this was happening, but it was a very big change for religious life. And a lot of the rigidity went, and there was just much more freedom and recognition of us as people, and as people who needed to grow. And the other thing is, we were being prepared for missionary life. So up to then, we didn't have much contact with people outside. We didn't have a chance to watch television or listen to the radio or newspapers. So all of that came in, of course, and it was a much greater preparation for mission life. Sister Joan remembers her time in the novitiate preparing to become a nun as being very rigid pre-Vatican II. It was very, very different from the life that I was used to, the freedoms and the, the dresses and the parties and going to work every day and all that. But somehow, because we had lots of companions and people from all over Ireland and I, I had never really mixed very much with people outside my own locality and... Uh, I enjoyed very much the the companionship and the feeling that I knew what to do every part of the day because it was very tightly scheduled. At this stage of convent life, this was in the early 60s before Vatican II, everything was laid down, the time you got up, the time you went to bed and everything you did in between. That struck me one day much, much later when I made my profession in Marimor, in Wicklow, 
And then I made my final profession in Mokpo in Korea, 1968. Pre-Vatican II, the structures of religion were very tight at the time. Dr Yvonne McKenna is a sociologist and author of Made Holy, Irish Women Religious at Home and Abroad. And yet on the missions, there was a greater freedom. And that's what they did all speak about. It's just that you couldn't actually have the rigours of religious life as it existed in Ireland, in either Ireland or Britain at the time of uh, the convent or anything like that. It would have been difficult to replicate that on the missions, even though many people tried. Um, and I suppose that was one of the themes that all of the women on the missions would have mentioned, just that there was greater freedoms, um, there was greater community with other religious communities as well as outside of that so you know they, they, they spoke a lot about their relationships with people and um, which was a stronger theme than would have been the case for for women in community either in ireland or, or in england i'm sister mary rita o'mahony from cork city and i felt called to be a missionary but i didn't want to be a nun in the beginning and I put it off. But anyway, eventually, I ended up here in Artfoyle Convent, Cork. And when I was professed, I was sent to the university to do a degree. And then, as soon as I was finished my course, I was sent to Ghana. I went by boat. We went from Cork to Dublin. And then, that evening, we crossed the ferry. Uh, first time I was ever in a ferry. And then... There was three other sisters with me. Two of them had been about my own age and one a seasoned missionary who had been in Nigeria for many years. Then we went across Liverpool to another quay and then got into a big boat. There were, I think, six of us on the boat, six sisters of Our Lady of Apostles. And we spent about two weeks on sea. I arrived in Ghana uh, on the 29th of September, 1959. After travelling that marathon journey by sea to her mission country, Sister Mary Rita had to travel several more hours by road before she would reach her destination. So I remember arriving in Takaradi and um, we had big trunks in those days. I'm not sure for what because I had practically nothing in them. Just nearby we had a convent so all the sisters came out of the boat. Sister was waiting for me to bring me to Cape Coast which is about two hours journey from Takaradi. Uh, so I was sitting in the back of what we call a mammy truck. Now, um, <laughs> we actually in Ghana we call it trotro. It is just uh, a wooden structure on top of um, the basic part of the lorry. So I was sitting at the back uh, looking out. <laughs> For Sister Mary Rita, it was the long stretch in the evenings that she missed most about home. Anyway, we arrived in Cape Coast and it was evening by that stage. And of course, in Ghana, where I was always, it got dark at six in the evening and got bright at six in the morning. No change, no long, <laughs> long days, nothing. <laughs> it was kind of difficult to get used to it. Sister Mary O'Shea was in for a shock when she landed in her mission country. So when I got off the plane, it was like walking into a hot oven, a hot, moist oven. The heat was intense. It was very difficult. I said, how on earth am I going to survive this? 
Sister Jill McDermott travelled by sea to her first mission posting in Korea in 1967. Taking the long way around allowed her to process the huge decision that would shape her life for the next 20 years. Yes, it was quite strange. Uh, the, the value of travelling out by boat meant that I gradually got to see and meet people of different nationalities and I saw different countries and I could gradually feel that I was leaving the familiar and coming into very, very strange circumstances and places. So I was somewhat prepared for the difference, but yet this was permanent now for me where I was going to live. Dr. Carmen Mangan defines the true meaning of religious vocation. I think becoming a, a missionary is you know, and becoming a nun were, you know, had to be compatible. Um, that a woman had to have this vocation for religious life or she wouldn't have made it through kind of that, that very rigorous program of, of becoming a nun, the postulancy and the novitiate, and the training that came afterwards as young sisters, um, you know, before they take their, their final vows. I went to train as a midwife in 1974 in Hollis Street in Ireland and it was then that it struck me all that I was missing in being a mother because even though I had worked in uh, maternity wards and that in Korea, seeing the joy of the families and the, the, the wonderful joy that it brought when a baby was born and I remember throwing myself on the bed one day and saying and that will never be for me and I really cried my eyes out that day and felt that this was really more when I actually made the sacrifice of not being a married person and having a family of my own it was that realization and it was then that I really made up my mind that this was something that I had to dedicate my life to and it was a, a more real decision than the earlier decisions I had made. Arriving in the mission country presented a whole new set of challenges for Sister Mary Dillon when she arrived in Korea back in 1975. Korea, arriving in Korea, food actually was the very first thing that would strike you. Food is different. Rice is the stable food of Korea. Like I wouldn't have had that experience. Language, very difficult language. And we had, we spent our first two years in language school. It's not easy, you know, in the missions. There, there is nothing about that experience, I think, that would have been easy. They would have been in surroundings that were different. They would have been eating different food, different temperature. Yes, they would have had the support of the congregation, perhaps even support of some of the clergy or bishops there, but it's still, they had, they had to get to know kind of the, the systems there and how to obtain goods and services. It wasn't like Ireland, and it wasn't always healthy places for some of them. So many came back unwell because the climate wasn't right for them. Um, even with all the, you know, the support they would have had, it's still a really different environment. Different people and learning the language was so hard for some of them. I was in one place called Indu for 25 years. <laughs> in the same bed <laughs> for 25 years. And it is a beautiful country. Cameroon is. I was 18 years there. In that, and then I was sent to a, 
a remote village, a really a farming village in the middle of the country called uh, Kinyasi. Now this was a very, very different way of life. You know, there was no running water, no electricity, <laughs> no entertainment, uh, no phones. I never had a phone for the 17 years I was there. You know, the people were lovely. They, they used to follow the nature, you could say. They, they got up when it got bright, went to their farms and came back then when it was getting dark and had their meals. And, you know, they followed the seasons. It was lovely. Sister Mary O'Shea found the African tropical climate was in total contrast to the driving rain and gale force winds that she left behind in her native Kerry. It was very, very high above sea level, 2,000 feet above sea level. It was very high. So it would be cold at night, but hot during the day. You're listening to Mission Possible on Documentary on News Talk. Into Korea, got off the plane in Kimpo, the old airport in, uh, in Korea at the time, and it was a thing that really shocked me. There were two police, uh, armies, army men, with two guns standing at the foot of the plane. So it was martial law in Korea when we were in Korea. But because we were a huge group there, it really didn't in any way instill fear in us. Why? I suppose you had the support of the group. You didn't know, I didn't know too much about the culture. I didn't know too much about the political situation of the country. We had experiences afterwards where we had assassinations and coups and all that, you know, you began to uh, open your eyes. There's something else on here, you know. Uh, we're not too far from North Korea. Uh, we have the DMZ, you know, no man's land between North and South Korea. Yeah, your propaganda going on between the two countries. But um, within Korea at that time, that was recovering from the Korean War, 1952. This was 1975. Korea was still very poor. It was still a martial law. It was still a dictatorship government. But very soon afterwards, life began to move on within 10 years. We had a few coups during that time. I don't know, I went to school one morning and then somebody said, oh, there's a coup. I said, what do you mean? Well, there's some new government has come in and Kwame Nkrumah, he was our first president. He had gone to, I think, China and the people rose up against him because he was turning into a dictator at the time. Um, he was very good, he had uh, vision, but he wanted everything his own way. Everybody must do what he wanted. He made himself president for life and that sort of thing, mm. you know. And so they rose up against him. And But th- there was only some fighting in the capital crowd, but it didn't really affect us at all. I remember saying to one of our workers, um, how did the coup affect you? Oh, uh, same car, different driver. And <laughs> they weren't any better than the old one. I think it's, it's hard. I think the romance is there in the magazines and the films, but once you get in the missions, I think it was a lot of adjustment. And no doubt some sisters probably thought to themselves, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? But many of them would have just kind of buckled down and said, okay, this is what I wanted, and perhaps struggled to kind of make it to the other side to become 
part of the system that was there, but I think it was just must have been really, really hard, you know, a hard slog. I'm Geraldine Henry. Being a daughter of charity is in her DNA. I was born in Belfast. I went to school with the Daughters of Charity from I was five. My aunts went to school with the Daughters of Charity before me, and so did my granny. So I couldn't escape joining the Daughters of Charity, which I did after school when I was 18. But I always wanted to go overseas. And every time I applied, I was told, no, you have, you have to do what you're doing there. You have to do what you're doing there. But I had always that desire. Notwithstanding that her first posting in Africa would be a baptism of fire, it made her more determined than ever to follow the path into what could be seen as uncharted territory for a woman and as a missionary. At the time Goal were going, the war was on in Sierra Leone. So I was asked to go with Goal. So I went off with one other sister and one Goal man. And we were working in a camp for displaced people. And oh my goodness, that was an experience. People were coming. They had such trauma. It was really, really difficult. So I came back from Sierra Leone to work in here. And I was, I said, oh, I can't stick this. She spent 12 years as mission development coordinator in Nigeria, helping people displaced by war and conflict. At the time, the Nigerian government had decided that they wanted to make Abuja a capital and the centre of government. So all of the indigenous people, the Bagi people who lived there, they threw them all out of where they were and resettled them in a place called Kubwa. We ended up, there was over a million people living in this huge big area you know that they were they came from somebody said to me did you learn the language i said it was like the united nations of nigeria because everybody spoke and the lingua franca that you had to learn was pigeon and we built a small hospital and we built a center for children with an intellectual disability who had nothing while her skills as a nurse and coordinator equipped her for the role, however, owing to the nature of her job, it presented a huge risk to her personal safety. We had five armed robberies. I saw five armed robberies in. One was on the road and the rest were in the house. The first one was in the house and we were only building at the time and it was a cash economy. So you had to pay everybody and I had gone to the bank and had brought home money and... The next thing I wakened up and there was bang and bang and bang and bang and bang. They were trying to break down the wall. They said, so the few sisters that were in the house, they all ran, hid somewhere. So I said, they're going to come in anyway, so I better, I opened the door and uh, they said, give us the money. Somebody had told them. So I gave them the money and off they went. So I said, they're not going to catch me again with this money. So it was quite a substantial amount of money because we were building the clinic and um, a few weeks later they came back again. But I had the money in the cistern of the toilet all wrapped up in plastic. And so they came again and everybody was hiding again. I said, I've no money now. You stole all my money the last time. And they said, bring us to your room. So I brought them to an empty room. This is not your room. There's nobody here. So then I brought them to one of the other sister's rooms. He'd give me a slap, you know. 
They said, where's everybody? I said, there's nobody here, only me. And I said, there's one left, and she's in the chapel praying. And anyway, they went round the rooms, they broke down the doors, and they really didn't get much, you know. And when they were going, you know what it says to me? Say a prayer for a sister. And I said, pray for you. I said, I'm telling you, I'll draw down the devil on you. The missions presented a, a kind of exciting pursuit. Dr Yvonne McKenna explains. In some senses, when it was presented, up to and including an early death, you know, it was that, that level of heroism. Um, but, but it was also presented as, in some ways, the, the most important challenge of the times. Um, I don't know if today's, you know, counterpoint might be climate change or something like that, but it, but it was really like to go out and be at the, the front line um, of help and assistance and obviously also um, Catholicism was, was an important part of it or, or bringing Christianity as they saw it. So, so it was certainly in those terms. So during that time I did a lot of work with the sisters in the different, like we have 28 places in Nigeria you know, from the north to the south and I travelled a lot and in the beginning I drove myself and I'd have driven from Abuja to Port Harcourt which was 12 hours you know, and not great cars and all of the rest of it but it's not like it is now, it wasn't as dangerous then, but there was always there was always something and there was nowhere you could stop to spend a penny or to eat something and all of the rest of it, but I have to say I really I really loved my time there Sister Joan McDermott's first mission posting was to Korea in 1967. I was a nurse there. I worked in a hospital, a midwifery training hospital, and it was about a 200-bed hospital, which we, as Columban sisters, ran in a port city called Mokpo. In the 20 years she spent in Korea, Sister Joan would have trained hundreds of women of different generations to be nurses and midwives. I went in 1967, and I finally left it in 1989. It was an amazing achievement, but her work was not done yet. I was in Pakistan for more than 20 years. Now in her second mission posting to Pakistan, the first three years were taken up with learning Urdu, the local language. We learned language first, and then I was working in a hospital situation in Hyderabad, trying to get conversant with language and that. In effect, she was starting all over again. Then we got this invitation to go out to a border parish which bordered India on the extreme eastern side of Pakistan. It was her mission to empower women who were marginalised from society. The idea really was to befriend the women of the tribal people. And some of these had become Christian. They had been outcasts of the Hindu religion because at some stage or other they had eaten meat or they couldn't survive without eating whatever they could find in the desert. So these particular tribes were considered outcasts from the Hindu caste system. Her work took her to the most remote areas of the country to support the women who were cast out of society. They were considered low caste and they did very much the menial work like making roads and picking cotton and picking the crops and rearing their children was primary for them. I think for a lot of women it was a package deal. Dr Carmen Mangan. It was, 
you know, it was a community, it was a ministry, it was the education, you know, it was evangelization, it was that doing something bigger than themselves. I, I just, yeah, I think it was, you know, it, for many of them, I, I never say all because, I, you know, but I think for many of them it was a, a package deal, um, I, you know, and part of the, the attraction of religious life, um, and the particularly religious life that was involved with the, with the mission. Sometimes the package deal involved more than one mission posting. Sister Mary Dillon. I went to Korea in 1975. I was there for 23 years. I returned here in 1998. I was here in, in the mother house doing home service for three years. And I went to Myanmar in 2002. And I left in 2017. Yeah, it's a long time. My whole... Um, vision or my whole experience was Asia really and Asia is different because I have traveled to the Philippines and I have traveled to South America since. I, I suppose I have a great ability to adapt to the different places I go to and get to know the people and... Um, it's home to you, really, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Certainly, you see, when I was 25 years in Indu, it became home because I knew everyone. Now, we were the only white people in the whole area and often I was there on my own. But I, I never had any fear. Like, the local people looked after us very well and they appreciated what we were doing. Having spent a lifetime on the missions, I asked the sisters how they felt about returning home to Ireland. What they said was very telling. Oh, I'm not sure where I am now, sort of suffering from culture shock. You were asking about what Ireland was like before. The people in Gann are very religious. I must all the Muslims go on a Friday and the Catholics go on Sunday and Methodists, Presbyterians, they all go and just on, all the shops shut down then to come back here and you know the papers are so anti-religious and I find that very difficult to accept how anti-truth and justice that is so much rife in Ireland I find it difficult. When I came home in 2016 there was huge hostility towards the church and I got the feel when I read the papers or listened to the news that people thought that every priest and religious brother and religious sister was a criminal. It was a shock to me really. I just felt that the younger generations, now the older generations would understand the history of religious life and that they had worked hard for education and for health and so on in this country. But I must say I was disappointed that the whole thing was so unbalanced. I felt probably the church itself, it had depended too much on the priests because there were plenty of them. Whereas where I came from, the church was being run by lay people because there was great scarcity of priests and uh, female missionary sisters. So it was being run by them. The parishes were huge in Cameroon. For example, we had 15 outstations or missions. 
whereas here the parishes were small. And I was a member of the church, but the church was seen as the priests and religious, whereas we had gone further really in the mission countries. People saw themselves as the church. So somehow Vatican II wasn't put into practice here in the same way as it was put into practice in the missions. That we had pastoral councils from way back at all levels and lay people were running these pastoral councils. We were learning from it learning from the local people themselves. I asked Sister Mary Rita O'Mahony if she felt that she made a difference to the lives of the people she served on the missions. I spend my life actually 63 years in Ghana teaching girls. I believed completely in the upliftment of girls that is very important because they were second-class citizens when I went there and uh, because especially in as I say in Kinyasi this rural village where teachers didn't want to come it was to, you say, to Bush, and um, the girls would never have gone to school, only that we had that, this school for them. So uh, I felt definitely that I had made, not just me, but of course, and being a part of the Sisters of Our Lady of Apostles, I stress that I could have done nothing without being part of that. Since I came back, they, they have been emailing me and so on. Sister, you shouldn't have gone. You should have told us you were going. We wanted to say goodbye and to thank you for all you did for us. You were the, the first step in our ladder right up to the top, especially for girls. I think girls' education is so important. That was so neglected. I can remember the, there was one university near us, 40, 50 miles away, and there was only one girl from this whole area that I was in, the size of Munster, that went to the university from that area. But now there are actually lecturers and professors in this university from the same area. And the OLA started that there. The Irish missionary sisters were the trailblazers of our time, travelling to remote distant countries to serve the poor, vulnerable and those cast out of society. They empowered the people, especially women in adverse and sometimes hostile conditions, further complicated by the recent COVID pandemic. Sister Geraldine Henry was there. But COVID really, really caused terrible problems. There was big lockdowns and one of the sisters said to me, you know, Geraldine, People are not afraid of COVID. They're afraid of dying of hunger. They had no food and they weren't able to do their petty trading. They weren't able to keep going, you know. But I've just got money again from Ishankara to continue that programme. There's one of them in Kano in the north and one in uh, Niger State. You know, any money that was there, the husbands were in charge of it. But we decided then that we'd bring the husbands into the programmes as well so that they would see the importance of it. So it's all that kind of empowerment and getting our own sisters to kind of think outside the box, and they are marvellous. When I was researching this documentary, I wanted to find out if there were any supports in place for returned missionaries. Sister Kathleen McGarvey, Provincial Leader of Our Lady of Apostles in Cork, is past president of the Association of Leaders of Missionaries and Religious of Ireland, better known as AMRI. Here she tells me how Amrai is best placed to support missionaries returning home, many of whom would have given their whole lives to the missions abroad. A very important service that Amrai is providing is support to the leaders, as where we can share on the challenges of you know caring for elderly members 
or the challenges of the past uh, or the challenges of you know ensuring towards healing and so on and so forth and towards peace and the whole safeguarding measures but also just on living our mission and even having conversations around like the reality in Ireland today the webinars and synodality or the experience of women religious you know all of those have been facilitated through Amri, where congregations can come together and share in those. But supports for return missionaries themselves, no, Amri doesn't really do that. Most missionaries that, that are coming back now today would be of a more elderly, and uh, it's not the likes of that that they would actually need. So it's a leadership organisation. So you, you pass on to the members the newsletters or the invitations to the webinars or whatever else might be, but for the most part it's for the leaders. There had been more things in place when there was the IMU, the Irish Missionary Union, and they were wonderful to the missionaries who returned, say, about 10 years ago. The sisters who returned that time would say how they were helped so much and that they formed groups and that they brought them on excursion and brought them to different parts of the country and kind of showed them the ropes back again. And then there was an amalgamation between CORI and the IMU, and that became AMRI. And the people who came back with me around the 2017 era, we felt a little bit lost or let down because those same structures were not in place. And I suppose less so now because of COVID, that there's even less. So I was lucky to get assigned to Ballymun. I was lucky that I had good enough health to come and reinsert into um, a situation like Ballymun. It's like a community. It's a great community, very strong community. And finally, in the serenity of St. Columban's Convent Chapel, Sister Mary Dillon recalls celebrating her golden jubilee, Korean style. I had my silver jubilee in Korea, but I had my golden jubilee here in 2017. It's very nice, actually. And I wore a kitchen dress. It was a long skirt and a, um, a short little um, blouse made in, of Korean embroidered material. And I carried in a rice bowl, which is a sign of life and food and hope for the people. Mission Possible was produced, recorded and edited by Gronia MacPolin. Assistant producer Kelly Crichton. Music composed and arranged by JJ O'Shea. Studio facilities thanks to Kerry College, Moyna Valley Campus, Tralee, County Kerry. Mission Possible was funded by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. For more documentary on Newstalk, visit Newstalk.com.